Open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And we want to look this morning at verse 14. It's always a challenge for uh, any pastor to, if you stay in one place very long, to come up with new Christmas sermons. <laughs> There's only so many texts and scriptures that deal in the scriptures that deal with the birth of Jesus Christ and so eventually you preach all of those and so um, you, you sort of just get uh, to, to choose from from one of those but um, I'm thankful that this year is, has unfolded the way that it has I'll say that it according to my planning if you were to look at my sermon planning calendar there are a lot of eraser marks on uh, the sermons for this fall because it didn't necessarily start when I wanted it to. Uh, some sermons were slated as one and turned into two. We've had guest speakers, um, any number of reasons that, that I'm not as far along in John 1 as I had hoped to be. But in the providence of God, we are at verse 14 on the Sunday before Christmas. And I cannot think of a better text outside of the gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, maybe a few in Isaiah that we could preach this morning and look at as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, commit this time to him, ask him to lead and enlighten our minds as we look for him. Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that You would be exalted now through Your Word as we consider the miracle that is Jesus Christ. Your birth, Your life, Your death, Your resurrection, Your ascension, and Your reign. May we celebrate with great joy and hope this Christmas season because of who You are. Because of what You are. So Lord, we pray that You would accompany Your Word May it find its mark and do its work in our heart. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's uh, go back in John chapter 1 and let's look at verse 12, 13, and 14 and then jump into verse 14. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke and Matthew both open in the very early stages of their Gospels with a passage about the birth of Christ. The nativity passages that uh, were just read for us this morning and ones that we are well familiar with. John opens differently. And yet, even in John, verse 14 serves as his nativity passage. It is John's attempt to tell us what occurred at the birth of Christ. While he doesn't include the extensive historical or genealogical record of Matthew or Luke, he records a profound theological 
telling of the Christmas story. The, every angle of every one of the Bible writers is important. And we can't dismiss any of them or regard one as more important than the other. But certainly John brings to the table something that the other writers do not that is critical for us as we think about the birth of our Savior. It was the early church father, Athanasius, who you'll remember so valiantly defended the deity of Christ in the 4th century against Arius and the other early heretics who questioned the deity of Christ. Athanasius is famous for making this statement, Christ became what we are that we might become what He is. Christ became what we are, that is to say human, in order that we might become what He is, that is to say glorified and sanctified and to be righteous, covered in His righteousness as He is, accepted by the Father. And yet as we read over the Christmas stories, and as we think about what this time of year means, too often and even most often, we miss the real power of what God has done. It just becomes a story to us, or it becomes so familiar to us that we really miss the power that is in this celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. This is certainly not a normal birth. This is not a normal event. It had never happened before. It hasn't happened since and won't ever happen again. This is not a normal birth. It's it's not even a, a birth to which special significance is attached in terms of of uh, you know some kind of mystical happening or mystical thing. It is a human birth. But it is miraculous and it is powerful in that it is God taking on human flesh. It is not superhuman. I don't believe for a minute that Mary went through childbirth with you know, no pain, no problems. It was human in the fullest extent of a pregnancy and of a birth. And Christ, flesh and blood, was not mystical flesh and blood. It was human flesh and blood. He was truly God and Truly man. Now this is not normal in one sense, and yet it is completely human in another sense, and it is completely awe-inspiring in yet a third sense, because what occurred on Christmas was not simply a birth. Brothers and sisters, what happened at Christmas was an invasion. God invaded time and space and matter that He Himself created in order to take on our humanity. He invaded. He came down in order to make us sons and daughters of the living God. If Christmas is about God sending His Son, and this is, for us as Christians, this is really what it boils down to and what is important for us to consider this morning. If Christmas is about God sending His Son, and if the meaning of Christmas is only found, and hear what I say, if the meaning of Christmas is only found in that truth that it is about God sending His Son, becoming the God-man Jesus Christ, 
then we need to throw away everything else that says this is what Christmas is about. We need to throw it on the ash heap of human history. Anything that competes for this one true meaning of Christmas is a lie. Doesn't mean that we can't celebrate. It doesn't mean that we can have, can't have traditions. But we had better be very careful as the people of God to tell the truth about what this season means. This season is not about food, and it's not about gifts, and it's not about fantasies, and it's not about anything else. It is about the invasion of God Himself into humanity. And we need to be careful that we remember it that way and that we celebrate it in that way. Because everything else has been imagined. Everything else has been added to. Everything else has been invented by men if it is not this one cardinal meaning of what Christmas really is. This is the truth. This is the one quintessential central part of Christmas. Everything else has been invented and added by the imaginations of men. And I want us to see this morning in John chapter 1 and verse 14 the characteristics of Christmas as John reveals it in this passage. Again, this is the only truth about this season. Uh, it's not about all the festivities we've added. In fact, I told the kids last night in kind of brief form, you know, we tend to have this idyllic thing about Christmas in our mind. That Christmas is kind of, and it always has been, kind of a Courier and Ives painting. Snow blanketing a German town. An English village. Sleigh rides and festivities and all of these things. That we have all of these ways that we tend to celebrate Christmas in the Western world. And that's not what Christmas looked like at all. That all came along centuries and centuries later. What Christmas really looked like was what I told the kids last night. Probably a lot like West Texas this time of year. Dusty, dry, brown, no Christmas trees, no Santa Claus, no uh, you know uh, symphonies, no uh, Miss Casey's Christmas store. You know, I mean, no, no Hobby Lobby, none of that. It was simply the birth, the invasion of the God-man into history. Everything else has been added by men and the traditions of men. And so it's important for us, again, to see the crux and the, the centrality. And again, this, it's fine to have traditions, but we need to regard them as such and not make them, this is what Christmas is about. It's not. John 1.14 is what Christmas is about. We need to let this guide our thinking and let this truth be our truth and only the only truth that we live by. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning there is a characteristic of human, or I'm sorry, a characteristic of humiliation. There's a characteristic of humiliation in John chapter 114. For the first time since verse 3, we find the reappearance of the Word. In verse 3, we read that the Word by Him, all things had 
come into being. And the Word had been with God. And the Word was God. And really since the first time, the Word takes central position on the stage yet again. And what we find in verse 14 is that when the Word appears in this verse, it is potent because it illustrates the extreme measures that God undertakes in order to bring about our salvation. The Word has humiliated Himself. He has undergone humiliation in that He has come to invade time and history and human flesh to be made like us. There's never been an invasion like that. That God Himself humbled Himself and came taking on Himself our form. The only time that Christ will come again that will rival this will be His second coming. When He invades the world and every eye will see and every one will understand exactly what is happening. And yet here we have this great theme of humiliation that Christ became human for us. For our salvation. He came down. I know it's not a particularly Christmas hymn, but perhaps we should make make it a Christmas hymn. The hymn that we often sing at Easter. But it ought to be sung at Christmas too. And that hymn is this, What wondrous love is this, O my soul. O my soul. What wondrous love is this. We look at John chapter 1 and verse 14. We look at the Christmas narratives of Matthew 1 and Luke 2. And our hearts should cry out, What wondrous love is this. That Christ would undergo the humiliation of becoming like the very things He created. For in this season, God sends His only Son into the world to redeem the world from the warfare that we created. God didn't create the problem. God didn't create the need for our salvation. We did by our sin. It's been often said that the only thing we can tribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. It's true. And so for that purpose, Christ came. The Word became flesh. He humbled Himself and became flesh. And He entered a world that was entirely hostile to Him. There was no beachhead. There was no small group. There was no small area that was prepared for Him in which He could come and find refuge. No, Christ entered a world entirely hostile to Him. Brothers and sisters, that is humiliation. That is Christ humbling Himself in ways that that we can't fathom. He came from a place where all He had ever known was the adoration of the angels, the fellowship of His Father, The love of the Father for the Son. He comes from that place to a place where He was only hated. Foreign. Rejected by men. What does it take to leave heaven? And to humble yourself and come into a world like that where you are hated. Where every person you meet is born in rebellion against you. It takes the love of God. It takes a love of God that we simply cannot comprehend. That is what we mean when we say that the Word took on the characteristic of humiliation. 
by taking on Himself our humanity. Athanasius, I read his statement earlier, earlier, but I think we can accurately rephrase that by saying this, Christ became what He was not. He wasn't human. He was God. He was Spirit. And yet He took upon Himself our humanity. I want you just to think about that for a moment with me. John spells out that it is God we are dealing with. The Word is God. Go back to verse 1. The Word is God. He he is the Word. He is God. He is the revelation of God. Just ponder that. Ponder that. The Word who is God. And, And what do we know about the Word already from the first 13 verses of this Gospel? He is eternal. He has always existed, and yet He enters time in such a way that He has to be born. He who has always existed had to be born. That's mind-blowing. He's self-existent. As we read in the Confession this morning, He is begotten, not created. He didn't undergo normal procreative process with an earthly father and an earthly mother he who is eternally existent was simply invading the womb to take on human flesh he is self-existence he needs nothing in order to create his existence he's independent there there is no need that he has and yet he subjected himself to human flesh where He would experience the needs that we have. But as God, He has no needs. Yet in His humanity, He was hungry. And He was tired. And He wept. He's a creating God. We learn that from verse 3. All things came into being through Him. He who created all things took upon Him the form of creation itself, even though He has eternally existed. He who sustains all things would subject Himself to true humanity where He needed to be sustained. That's why He said, I thirst. It's why He had to withdraw from the masses at times to pray. That's why angels had to come and minister to Him in His humanity because He Himself had to be sustained in that moment. He who sustains all things. He who gave life to every atom and every molecule now experiences the life that He gave in humanity. This God, John says, this Word, who is God, took upon Him our humanity in flesh and blood, yet without sin. And that defines, brothers and sisters, the the very essence of humility that we don't fully, I think, grasp. Think about who God is. Think about the reality that 
Christ is God. He is all of these things, and yet He came like us. That defies my comprehension. I think it defies yours as well. This God so full of glory took upon Him such poverty, such humility. He who is above all things placed Himself within our world. Above everything, and yet He becomes the servant of all. He becomes a slave. According to Philippians chapter 2, the Creator who is uncreated becomes a created being. And if that wasn't enough, as Murray Harris says, providing a follow-up thought to that, that round of shock and awe after the initial invasion, he says this, the Word became what He was not without ceasing to be what He was. You see, we, we, we are such bifurcated people. We, 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 we can't imagine the fact that, okay, well, if He became human, certainly He ceased to be God. But that's the miracle of Christmas. He didn't cease to be anything. He simply added two. We can't do that. We're either one or the other. You're either headed north or you're headed south. You can't be going both at the same time. Yet Christ came and took on humanity without in the slightest diminishing His deity. That in itself is mind-blowing. He didn't trade or minimize anything about Himself. And some will tell you He did. They lie and they're heretics. He's still truly God. Else how do you explain loaves and fishes meant for one? Feeding 5,000. And by the way, that's 5,000 men. It was many more than that. How do you explain that He tells the winds and the waves to cease and they do? How do you explain the fact that a woman touches His garment and He says, hey, I know somebody touched me and I know the situation of the one who touches me. How do you explain that he walks up to the tomb of one of his dearest friends and says into that cold, dark grave, Lazarus come forth and Lazarus walks out? How do you explain it if he's not still God? He maintains his deity by, and yet at the same time adds humanity to himself. He is the God-man. He took on, John says, the Word became flesh. That is, He took on flesh in addition to His deity. D.A. Carson says, this is His infleshing. He infleshed Himself. As As a person, He simply infleshed Himself, put on flesh so that He is truly human and truly God. Why? Why? Why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why did God allow this? Why did God accomplish this? We often ask that question, don't we, in times of tragedy? Why did this happen? Why did God do this? Why did God allow this? Why did God make this happen? But the more profound time to ask this question is when salvation comes and God taking upon Him the form of humanity. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God plan for this to happen? Why did God 
determined to accomplish this? And the resounding answer throughout the Gospel of John is what John states in John 20 and verse 31. That you might know and that in knowing you might believe. That you might become sons and daughters of the living God. That you might become righteous in the sight of God as Christ is. That's why God did this. That's why He came to redeem His people from their sin. That's why He enfleshed Himself. As much as we know, and we recited earlier, some of the attributes of God that we see so clearly in this prologue already. I mean, His eternality, His independence, all of these things, just as astounding as the contrast of the humanity Christ took on. Our humanity. Temporal, not eternal. This life is just a dash between two sets of numbers. That's all it is. It's just a a short little hyphen. And it doesn't last very long compared to God who didn't have a beginning and He'll never have an ending. Here we are. Just a little blip. Christ took that on. Weak. Needy. Having to eat. Having to rest. Having to go through life. Doing what humans do. Christ took on our frail humanity. Yet He did it without one essential part of us. And that is our fallenness. Our sin. Why would God be willing to do such a thing? Why would He want to identify with sinners? Why would He possibly ever dream of coming to say, yeah, I'm going to be like Brian or like any one of you. I want to identify with Him. When He is who He is, the only answer we can respond with is the overwhelming, unsearchable love of God. That's it. That's all we can do is conclude that it had to be that that drove Him to take on our humanity. Do you want to blow your mind even more? He enfleshed Himself in such a way that He lived with the consequences of the sin of every man and woman since Adam. He didn't cause the problem. He wasn't the root cause of the sin. It wasn't His problem. And yet He came knowingly, willingly, enfleshed Himself to live with the consequences of our sin. That is mind-blowing. That's unsearchable. You know, we, we tend to be kind of cute when somebody else is in a mess. Don't we? And we look at their life and it's a mess. And we have an opportunity to get involved in the mess. And the human response is what? Not my circus. Not my monkeys. Not involved. Doesn't involve me. I'm out. And yet Jesus looks at a world of fallen humanity. From Adam to the very last human being who will ever be born. And He says, I will willingly and joyfully, according to Hebrews chapter 12, endure the consequences 
they have created. The Word became flesh. That's what it means. He gets involved where no one else would dare to get involved. By His infleshing, He bore the tragedy of our sin ultimately in order to be able to redeem us from that sin. But for a time, He had to take on the tragedy of sin and experience all the mess that we had made in order to make us holy like Him. Christ took it all on in full humanity. Again, I I want to emphasize that because I think if there's a part of the story of Christmas, a part of the doctrine of God that we get wrong, a part of Christ that we miss, it's His humanity. It was real humanity. It wasn't partial humanity It wasn't a spirit emanation that made him look like flesh and blood, but he really just kind of continued to live the glorious life of deity. No, full humanity. The Jews in their day that John was writing to were tended to be Gnostic and dualistic in their approach. And they would have most likely have heard of this and wanted to envision Jesus coming but still maintaining some separation oh yeah he's god but and he's man but not really kind of you can't mix those two things and john says oh but he did he enfleshed himself he dwelt among us Uh, he came for us he lived a fully human life and to prove that john goes on notice what he says he dwelled among us as much as Christ's coming and taking on humanity is the fact that there is a staggering reality of duration here. He stayed with us. He didn't come, stick His head in the door and say, whoa, I'm not going in there. I'm gone. No, He came and He dwelt with us. The word literally means to pitch a tent with. The Hebrew word for this is to tabernacle with someone, to plant there, to stay there, to remain there, to be part of what is going on there. Christ the Word not only took on flesh, but He tabernacled with us. He took up residence with us. He lived among us in all of our consequences of sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see the magnitude of what happens? How could we let anything else at Christmas distract us from that? There's no greater story. There's no greater thing to be anticipated or celebrated that the very God of creation enfleshed Himself took upon Him our humanity and came and lived with us. Moved in with us. In order to know all of our weaknesses. I think John, certainly in his Gospel, gives us much to feast on, but he follows it up in his three short epistles. The end of the New Testament. And John gives us a gift for Christmas. 
And it's found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to notice what John says. It's almost as if John didn't quite get out everything he wanted to say here in chapter 1, verse 14 of the gospel. So he just elaborates on it at the beginning of his epistle. Notice what he says. What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen with our eyes? What we have looked at and what we have touched with our hands? concerning the Word of life. Hey, He's not just a lesson. He's not just a story. He's just not a principle. We have seen Him. We have lived with Him. We have touched Him. We have known Him. The Word of life. And the life was manifested and we have... seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and yet was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things I write to you so that our joy may be made You want a joyful Christmas? Go back to what Christmas is all about. You want to be filled with joy? Go back to what Christmas is all about. That which we have seen and heard and touched in the Word made flesh. John knew Him. He lived with Him. He ate with Him. He no doubt, laughed with them. He wept with them. He was part of their lives. And this one who was from the beginning, before the beginning, John says. John John takes us back to those things that we had seen about God that are true already in this prologue. That's the one we've heard. That's the one we've touched. That's the one who we've seen His tears. That one. As people in our day are fond of saying, when they want to create a shock and awe effect, when they want to lay some nugget of truth upon you, they preface it, don't they, by saying this, I'm just going to leave this right here. And they state it, and they walk away. It's as if John is saying that. I'm just going to leave this right here. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's all. That's all you need to know. That's that's it. That's That's the truth that should shake you to your core. But it's not only that we have beheld Him. It's that He is identified with us. He knows us. He dwelled among us. He tabernacled with us for 33 years. He came and experienced the fullness of humanity without sin. For 33 years. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is amazing love. And our response should be, as the hymn writers was, how can it be? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, would come and be made like me and then die like me? Amazing love. Amazing love. What a glorious characteristic this season bears in the humility of Christ. That He did not have to do that. He is not bound to do that. And yet, something within Him could not avoid doing that. The love of God to be shed abroad and broadcast and made known. You know, the only reason we can know these things, the only reason we can say these things, is the way verse 14 begins, because the Word became flesh. Because the Word became flesh, we can know these things and how do we know these things? How, how is it, John? John, how do we know this is true? John, how do we grasp this? Notice what he goes on to say, and we saw His glory. I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, we didn't just see a man. We saw glory come down. We saw glory as of the only One begotten from the Father full of grace and full of truth. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, if we really understood what John is saying, you would be so disinterested in anything else that we have been told Christmas is about that you wouldn't waste your time with it. You would be so enraptured by the glory John speaks of that you wouldn't even notice the gifts in your home when you go home this afternoon. You just kick them to the curb and to the side and say, this matters not. For I've seen the glory of the Father in the Son revealed to me. As John is thinking more deeply now about the amazing miracle of Christ's incarnation, His infleshing, he thinks not only in the terms of the actual event that, yes, Christ came and Christ was made a babe and Christ was born in Bethlehem. But he also pauses to think about what it means that that happened. What that act entailed. And John says, in that act we beheld the glory of God. Because Christ humbled Himself. Because Christ made Himself known. We beheld the glory. And it's almost like in this not only the characteristic of humiliation, but the characteristic of revelation, John is just hit with a bomb. That this is what this means. For those of us who've experienced being parents, we can kind of identify on a very small scale. You moms... First time that baby kicks and you feel it. It's like, oh, this is real. And it dawns on you a lot earlier than it dawns on us dads. 
But as a dad, I can tell you when they hand you that little baby for the first time, your world changes. And all of a sudden you say, okay, this is what this means. I've got to feed this thing. I've got to change this thing. I've got to teach this thing. I've got to love this thing. I've got to, what am I going to do? The reality sets in and John is hit with the reality that this isn't just a story. That this is the way that God has chosen through humility to reveal His glory. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, who, speaking of Christ, although He existed eternally so, in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to. But He emptied Himself. He humbled Himself. And took upon him the form of a bondservant, a slave, the lowest kind of slave. And being made in the likeness of men. And we have seen his glory. Not because he came riding in on a white stallion and conquered the world. He will, but he hasn't yet. But John says, even regardless of that, we have seen his glory in revelation, through humiliation, there in Bethlehem. Because the Word loved enough to enflesh Himself. Like so many who will follow Jesus in this Gospel, like so many that you know, tragically, who have claimed to be followers of Jesus and in the end fallen away, we need to be careful that we do not follow Him for a glory that we have defined by our own sinful desires. You see, Jesus drew a crowd. Jesus had the masses. If I can say this as reverently as as I possibly can, and I don't mean this facetiously, I mean this quite seriously. But in Jesus' day, Jesus was the crowd-gathering wonder of the world in His day like Joel Osteen is in ours. The masses were drawn to Him by the thousands. They followed Him all around Judea. But as Jesus began to teach the truth and Jesus began to reveal the sin in their lives, many wanted Jesus to be the Messiah of their making and as soon as it was clear that He was not the Messiah they wanted, they were out. They were gone. And Jesus went from being the one who draws the crowds in adoration to the one who drew the crowds for crucifixion. It's not Jesus as you want Him. It is Jesus as He is. It is Jesus whose glory is revealed and whose glory is missed because too many human beings want a carnal version of Jesus rather than a glorified version of Jesus. Some wanted Him for military, stately, earthly purposes. Others wanted Him for riches and pomp and circumstance. Maybe it's an easy life. 
Maybe it's prosperity that He will provide for them. Maybe it's healing that they wanted from Him. But John says it's none of that. That is not His glory. His glory is revealed in grace and truth. We need to do what John did in order to be moved and gripped by this, brothers and sisters. We need to be moved and gripped by the glory that is inherent to God in fleshing Himself with us. But it will take spiritual eyes to see it. You can't see spiritual truth with carnal eyes. Paul says in Corinthians, you can't know these things. And the reason you don't know these things, Corinthians, is because these truths are spiritually discerned. Spiritually known. You can't expect to come to Jesus with carnal eyes, with eyes that are clouded over by the meaning of Christmas, with all of the entrapments we've added to it, and expect to really behold the wondrous mystery. We sang it last night with the young people. Come behold the wondrous mystery. How do we do that? With spiritual eyes like John who want to see the glory of Christ. John says, we beheld Him. And and this is not a mere looking at, hey, look, there's Jesus. It's somebody who can't quit looking at Jesus. There's an intense gaze, a prolonged searching of the Word. Yeah, yeah, I know that's what it says. To put it in the form of those of you who like to read books, it's you read the book and then you read the footnotes to the book and you go read those books that are referenced in the books and all of their footnotes to get to the very bottom and you research this thing to death. That's what John says they did with Jesus. We just look at him and say, oh, how wonderful, that's neat. And we got to get to the bottom of this. We got to get to the bottom of this. And Paul was the same way. Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 11. And what is Paul's conclusion? Oh, how unsearchable. You'll never reach the bottom. There's no bottom to it. Infinitely good and rich. John says, we've tried. We gazed intently. We prolongingly searched the glory of that word enfleshed with us. But it does not end with Jesus finally giving you what you want. It is Jesus giving us what we need. Grace and truth. That's what we need. Murray Harris says it's to see the person and work of Jesus when we behold Him this way. Not what we want, but what He is. The Word is not open to our interpretation, only to our investigation. Let me say that again. The Word in flesh, Jesus Christ, is not open to your interpretation, only to your investigation. He is what He is. He is the the immutable glory of God, never changing. And, And only those who want to see Him for what He is, will see Him. Only those who have a longing and searching gaze to know Him, not what we want, but what He is, can know Him. So, so many people have come to Jesus to receive from Him, but never to know Him. And they've all had a tragic end to their attempts. But to those who do come in order to gaze upon Him, to behold Him, 
to know the revelation that he's given, he has made himself known. Just like verse 12, there are those who have received him. So what is the glory that John speaks of? What is the glory that we see? Number one, it's a unique glory. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten. Only begotten. The word means the only one of its class. There is literally nothing to be compared with it. There is no other thing in this class. Jesus is really unique. And again, unique is one of those words kind of like awesome that we have just totally butchered and overused. To use the word unique means there's nothing else like it. And we say, oh, that's unique, which means it's really neat, it's special. It may be one of a few, but it's not really unique. Jesus is unique. There is not another one in that class to compare Him to. In the context of a family, the word would be used of an only child, an only heir, a sole descendant of someone. The Word who has enfleshed Himself is the only one. He is unique in that sense. He proceeds from the Father. And He proceeds from the Father alone. There are no competitors. Not like the Mormons. Jesus has no siblings. Like Satan. How you get off on that is beyond me. It's not from reading your Bible. He is unique. He is the only begotten of the Father. That makes His glory special. Secondly, it is a final glory in that God has issued Jesus Christ. He has enfleshed His Son as the final word for our salvation. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, in the final analysis, has spoken to us in His Son. Not anybody else. Not another way. Not another path. Not another system. In the Son. The Greek is... Pretty emphatic here. It's roughly translated, literally translated, in one who is Son, as if there cannot be another. That's where God has revealed Him. He's unique in that there is no one like Him, never will be, never has been. God has said everything that needs to be said in the unique Son. And John says, and we've seen it. We've seen it when He enfleshed Himself. We saw what God did. Third, it's an eternal glory. It's a glory that we had a brief glimpse of here on earth for a very brief amount of time. But make no mistake, it's eternal in nature. Because the Word has already existed eternally according to chapter 1, verse 1. And it will con- He will continue to exist forever in that state of glory eternally. As Jesus is preparing to die, you know, people's last words are often their most profound. They, they reveal things on their deathbed that are profound in one way or another. And as Jesus is preparing to die, 
He doesn't call the masses together. He doesn't assemble the crowd. He doesn't send the disciples ahead and say, hey, go and rent a big building, fill it up, and I'm going to give one whale of a farewell speech. You know what Jesus does? He finds a garden where He can be alone with His Father. And thankfully, in the goodness and in the providence of God, God saw fit to record His words in that garden alone with His Father for us today. And as Jesus is there, He speaks of the glory that John says He saw. And he says in John chapter 17 and verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. Which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And brothers and sisters, all you need to do is back up a few verses And understand this, that Christ was praying for you. He starts out and he mentions the disciples, but he says, I don't pray for them only, I pray for all those who will believe. That's you and me. This Christmas, the glory of God is revealed in the infleshing of the Son and the realization of the truth that 2,000 years ago, in a deserted garden, with His last words, some of His last words, Jesus prays for us. That's a gift that we can't wrap and put under a tree. But it is a gift that keeps on giving eternally because He says, Father, I want them to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory. What's the glory? We'll get to that. But I want them to be with us and to know what I know and to show them what we are. Earlier on in that same prayer, Jesus prayed this, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Take me back. Restore all things as they were, and yet, in this restoring, I'm bringing people with me. So what is Christmas, you ask? Christmas is the divine revelation of God revealing a glory that is eternal, singular, and complete. A glory made possible only when God Himself enfleshed Himself as the Word of God so that the final characteristic we'll see this morning would be our being robed in the glory of His righteousness. What's the third characteristic in verse 14 we need to see this morning? It is this. It is the characteristic of our salvation. The characteristic of humiliation, the characteristic of revelation, and now the characteristic of salvation. And notice how John ends this verse 
we beheld his glory. What kind of glory was it, John? Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What do you mean by that, John? Ah, it was full of grace and truth. And herein we have a heavenly problem between two men. Moses and John. Because in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, Moses asked to see this glory. He says, I beseech you, show me your glory. God, I want to see your glory. And what does God tell Moses? You can't look on me and live. If I showed you, if you saw with your eye what I am, it is so blindingly powerful, it will kill you, Moses. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to hide you over here. And you look into the mountain. You look into the cave. And when I walk by, you'll hear about my glory, but you can't see my glory. And then fast forward, and John says, we didn't just hear about it. We saw it. We touched it. We handled it. We heard it. We looked intently into it. The glory of God. Moses is thinking, now why couldn't I have been John? I don't think Moses really cares much, but it's fun to imagine. John saw it. John just didn't see it here on earth, did he? In Revelation chapter 1, John saw it again. And what happens when John sees it this time? He falls down and he thinks he's died. That's how powerful it is. And what is its basis? What is its core? What is it made up with? Well, as Moses knows, and as John comes to find out, it's not so much about a visible glory as it is a salvific glory. He is full of grace and truth. Many missed His glory because they looked for outward glory. And John says, listen, it's not the outward glory you looked for. It's the inward glory of your salvation, of your being made right with God through the one who enfleshed himself. He can help you. He is your mediator. He is your savior. We can't see it, John. We're looking for the the, the knight in shining armor. John says it's not how he came. He came enfleshed like us. He he is the place where the truth of God about your sin and the grace of God that will forgive your sin, He is the place where those two things intersect. Moses only had the law. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ comes in fulfillment of the law with a promise of salvation that the law could never accomplish. You pick that up in verse 17. Jesus, the revelation of Jesus is the place where our salvation is made possible. In His humanity, in His uniqueness, in His glory, He leads to our salvation. It's a glorious thing. 
to be the human instrument that God uses to share the gospel with someone and see them come to faith in Christ, isn't it? Isn't that a joy? It's as joyful as watching your, a child be born. Maybe on some levels it's even better. When you share the gospel, when you talk to someone about Christ and God, through your voice, calls them. But here's the reality. Jesus is the true soul winner. Jesus is the one who leads us to salvation. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and following, For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, John 1, 3, in bringing many sons to glory, John 1, 12, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering in His enfleshing, for both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, For which reason, for which reason, there's another one of those truth bombs that's wrapped in a package for you this Christmas. Jesus, for this reason, is not ashamed to call them His brother. Just stop and think about that. Jesus right now stands before the Father who knows every sinful thought you've ever had, let alone deed you've ever done. He knows and He has a list. And before the Father stands the one who was enfleshed for us. And he stands there and he says, no, I'm not ashamed to call Brian my brother. You know what I would do? I would deny I ever knew me. And I would deny I ever knew you. And you would return the favor. But the one who is enfleshed in such glory for us, for our salvation, stands before the Father and He is not ashamed to identify with us and call us His brothers. But it couldn't have happened unless He had come and lived with us. And dwelling with us, tabernacled with us. And as Jesus is sitting there before the Father, we have this picture in Hebrews 2.12 saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Who's the real leader to salvation? It's Jesus. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me, therefore... Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted what a glorious salvation to look upon the very face of God had never been possible up until now to be where he was was impossible but now Behold Him fully. We can be where He is someday because He has already been where we are. The Word has come, John has said. The Word has enfleshed. So that what was true in Exodus 34, verses 5-7, through the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Him. As He called upon the name of the Lord, the Lord passed by in front of Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What does John say He is? Full of grace and truth. He who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. What Moses longed to see, John saw. And flashed for him. And flashed for us. Grace that saves by the truth of the Word and fleshed. Grace that saves from the sin that the truth uncovers. He became like us in order to accomplish that. And yet here we are. Here we are at a season of celebrating the infleshing of God Himself and yet we're so distracted. So distracted by so many things. We still live in enough of it, I guess, in the vestiges of the Bible Belt. You can go to Hobby Lobby, and you can buy all kinds of signs and trinkets that say clever little things like Jesus is the reason for the season. But do we really know what that means? Do we really understand what we're saying? Because what we should be saying in more depth and thinking about more frequently and more deeply is verse 14. The Word enfleshed Himself. The Word became flesh without damage to His deity. And He dwelled among us. He tabernacled with us. He moved in with us so that we could see and handle and touch and see the Word of God. So that He could reveal glory. Glory as of one only able to do this. Unique. So that we would ultimately realize the grace and the truth in our salvation. So that this Christmas, for those who have united themselves to Christ by faith in who He is and what He did, might have that joy. He shines brightest. Does the Father in the One who is Son in the message, the Word sent. Sent to save us. 
by first becoming like us in order to make us like Him. Perfect, spotless in the eyes of the Father, accepted, granted eternal life, prepared for an eternity of worship. That's what Christmas is. It's incumbent upon us then to ask ourselves the question, is that what we're really celebrating in our lives? Is this what we're really communicating to ourselves? Is this what we're really communicating to our children? You know, most of the stuff that's wrapped under our trees won't even be around next Christmas. It'll be outgrown torn, broken, ineffective, out of style or vogue, replaced by some new thing. But let me tell you, Christ is forever. The Word is forever. May we focus on Him. Father, thank You for Your Word written that tells us about the Word living. And we pray, O oh God, this Christmas the distractions would be stripped away. Lord, You've done that in some ways already. Some of us have not been able to do the normal things we'd like to do for one reason or another or get the things we had hoped to get because of one reason or another. But one thing has never changed. The Word was made flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Father, in a changing world, cause us to cling to that which cannot change. And hope in that which brings change to make us what we are not. And that is the righteousness of Christ in Him. So Father, cause us to celebrate joyfully around these truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.